If you have a bulletin with an outline, it will uh, help you keep on track for the verses that we're doing. But if you have a Bible, that's great too. Just going to have to skim with me. Um, Many times I will come home from work, come in for dinner, and one or several of my children will say, are you home for the night? Or do you have a meeting you still have to go out to? That's not exactly accurate. It's more like, do you have a stupid meeting you gotta go to? And uh, they get very excited if I am home for good. I don't have to go back out. They pull out the Monopoly board or we start drawing up numbers for driveway basketball around the world. It's great. Um, but oh, if I do have a meeting or, or heaven forbid a retreat or a week-long trip or something, their faces are very downcast. Um, but that is the best Father's Day present that my kids love my presence. And... Um, I'm grateful for that, and I think it was the same way with my dad. I remember very much excited when he got home from work. And in fact, his uh, ministry path was very similar to mine. He did youth ministry for many years before he was demoted to working with adults. And he stopped doing youth ministry because he was out a lot. You can do youth ministry with children, but. He uh, really was out too much, and he recognized that and knew that he needed to be home with his three kids. So in healthy, functioning families, parents and children spending time together is so important. The gift of presence is one of the most important gifts that you can give. Even if kids don't always acknowledge it or know how to ask it as, as much as mine do, um, and our passage this morning, while it may not seem like that's what it's teaching, is a great reminder that God's heart is to be present with his children. At this point in our study of Exodus, God has been leading his people out in the wilderness, but it's been a bit from a distance. But we're gonna see that the Lord will not remain on the horizon in a cloud or up on a mountain unapproachable, but that he would be present in the midst of the camp, that he would be traveling with them, in the midst of them, in the wilderness toward the promised land. But God is holy and we are not, and the Israelite community was not, and God's unveiled full presence in the midst of his people would destroy them. So he did not come down to dwell casually among the Israelites. He promised that he would be among them, but they would have to build the structure where he would dwell. So let's get a better understanding of what that looked like. Uh, the text is Exodus chapters 25 through 27. It's long, three chapters, almost 100 verses. I hope you didn't make reservations for Father's Day lunch. We've got a lot, some serious reading and explaining to do. Um, no, we'll, we'll read smaller parts as we work our way through it. We're not gonna read the whole thing. Uh, if, if you really wanna fill in, you're gonna need to follow along in your Bible, skim through as we work through. 
Um, just going to hit some of the high points. And the first nine verses are crucial. They're the setup for the rest of the chapters. And they are the call for contributions to build the tabernacle. So that's the first nine verses of, of chapter 25. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Let's pause there, our first scripture reading to pray. Lord God, thank you for this text in Exodus that we know all scripture is God-breathed, inspired, useful for teaching, training, correcting and rebuking in righteousness, Lord. So teach us what you will from this passage. Open our minds and our hearts to what you wanna get across to us about the original context and how we can understand this today in the new covenant. We lift this up in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, Dr. Dave talked about the covenant renewal ceremony and how it had the aspects of a worship service. This passage fills in one of the missing parts of the worship service, taking up the offering, right? Where do the people get all of these fancy things? I don't even know what half of these things are. But, you know, they're wandering around in the desert. There's no Hobby Lobby. There's no Home Depot. Where do they find these things? Remember back to Exodus 12, the Israelites have the favor from God in the eyes of the Egyptians. They were given supplies and treasures And in a sense, it's payment for hundreds of years of slavery. I don't know if that's how the Egyptians saw it, but God softened their hearts even as they were grieving the loss of their firstborns. And so it might have been fear, it might have been a number of things. But the Egyptians gave their Israelite neighbors all of these supplies. And that it helps furnish the tabernacle Costly, beautiful things are used. Now think about what the second phrase in verse two would mean to the people. Look at that closely. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. Now, how many times do you think Pharaoh asked the Hebrew slaves to do something politely while they were there? Or the slave masters You know, did they make things optional? Hey guys, if you feel like making those bricks today, go with what your heart wants. I don't think so. No, this is, 
Things were never optional, right? The Hebrews' feelings, what they felt in their heart had nothing to do with their work in Egypt. And now their great God has rescued them from slavery and brought them out on their way to their eventual dwelling place and he needs them to build a tabernacle, a structure, a portable structure in the desert. But he wants them to want to give, to be involved. And God still wants his people to want to give, right? 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You should not be guilted into giving. You certainly should never be forced to give. It should be a commitment from inside you. A heart that is so thankful for God's love and what he's blessed you with that you're compelled to give back. Giving to God is a, an important sign of our commitment to him, to Christ, to, to acknowledge that we, all that we own actually believes, belongs to God and that he simply calls us to wisely steward it. I mean, that frees us up Right, to give it away and to trust him. And we can invest in ministry and not just spend it on ourselves, spend it on others. A Christian who isn't giving reveals a lot about their heart attitude of trust in God. What they're saying is, I can't give money away because I don't really trust that God's gonna provide in the future. He's not gonna take care of my needs. They may not say that, but that's what they are thinking subconsciously. Now, the Israelites have struggled with trust in God, right? I mean, as soon as they start getting hungry or thirsty in the desert, they start complaining, and is God gonna leave us out here to die? Why did he take us out of Egypt, right? But actually now, they do trust him. And they actually passed this test. In another section of scripture, it says they gave so much that Moses has to tell them to stop. So God has a long list of things that Moses is gonna start collecting from the people. And the tabernacle is going to be this mobile structure to carried with them wherever they went. So the, the rest of the text, the three chapters, is explaining what God wants to see. And we'll start with the furniture inside the tabernacle. Uh, we'll hit some of the high points of that. Remember that the tabernacle was basically a large tent containing a courtyard, the outer court, which according to chapter 27, verse 18, is 150 feet long by 75 feet wide, seven and a half feet tall. We're gonna do all, we're gonna do all measurements, but it's pretty big. Um, and then there was a smaller tent, the tent of meeting, right, that was divided into two parts, the holy place where all the priests could go and make sacrifices and then the most holy place or the holy of holies, what we just sang about, where the high priest went once a year and no one else. Now as we read through these verses, we have to answer that old question that Bill Cosby and the Noah routine, remember the, what's a cubit? 
Um, maybe you haven't heard it. Uh, 18 inches. A cubit is uh, a foot and a half, and it's basically a measurement from your, the top of your middle finger to your elbow. So if you didn't have your ruler, pretty easy to figure out how many cubits as you're building. So the first element that God gives design instructions for is the Ark of the Covenant. So we're gonna, we're gonna be skipping around as we work through these because I, I just don't have time for all the details, but go back and read it when you have time. So let's do verses 10, 11, 16 through 18, and then 21 through 22. It's the Ark of the Covenant, also called, called the Ark of the Tabernacle. God tells Moses, they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length. A cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So the ark was just over four feet long, two feet wide, two feet high, right, just over, um, made of acacia wood, but overlaid with pure gold, which is gonna be a theme with a lot of the furniture. And some commentators see in that double command the, the dual nature, the, the, the two natures of Christ, in that picture, that the wood is his humanity and the gold is his divinity. I don't know if that's true. It might be. But certainly God wants beautiful things, well-constructed inside his tabernacle. And the ark, like everything else, had poles to carry it, right? Because they were gonna be moving around the wilderness. But the ark was so holy that a human, if, if a human being touched the ark, he would die. We know this from 2 Samuel chapter 6 when a man named Uzzah has the ark on a cart and he goes to steady it, touches it, and is struck dead. Do not touch this thing was holy. It was the only thing in the holy of holies. And these verses tell us why the ark is going to be important to Israel. Because it would store the words that God had spoken. But it would also be the place where God would continue to speak to them. The Ten Commandments, God's already given. God's words of instruction written on tablets of stone would be stored inside the ark. And did you catch the picture of where God would continue speaking to them? The mercy seat, which was essentially the lid had two angels on each side facing each other. And from there, in between there, God would speak to that high priest. So the second piece of furniture we come to, still in chapter 25, is the table. 
So I'm taking verses 23, 24, and then jumping down to 29 and 30. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. The table is a little smaller than the ark. Same acacia wood overlaid with gold. Now, we're not gonna talk at length about all the sacrifices and all the different functions. But simply to note that this table was for drink offerings, for incense offerings, and the bread that was eaten by the priests. And why do I say that? What's the picture we get here? Well, I see a, a meal, right? Bread and drink, a sign of their relationship with God, that God would have a table set for dinner in his holy place. Then we have the lampstand. And I'm gonna grab from the very end of all the chapters the oil for the lamps. So if you're in your Bible, it's 25 verses 31 and 37. And then jump over to chapter 27 at the very end. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. And now the end of 27, verses 20, 20 and 21. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a light may regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from morn, evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. The lampstand was also in the holy place, not in the holy of holies, which was kept dark but also not the outer court. And it was opposite the table of the presence. The, the lamps then also are commanded. Aaron and his sons kept them burning all night, every night. And finally, uh, we have a, a short introduction to the altar. Uh, we'll learn more about the altar in chapter 30. But it's mentioned here at the very beginning of chapter 27. You shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. Daily incense to be offered there. So finally, rather than reading all the details about where the curtains go, what they look like, there's a lot of detail here. And again, you should go back and read it and visualize it. But for the rest of the instructions, I want to uh, just skim through chapter 26 and some of the arrangements in the tabernacle. So um, hopefully you're looking at the bulletin because um, it's all laid out there, but I'm taking chapter 26, verses 1, 7, 
15 and then a chunk from 31 to 35. So if you're in your Bible, I hope you can follow. Verse one, moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with 10 curtains of fine twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. Verse seven, you shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains shall you make. Verse 15, you shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. And then down to verse 31 through 35, you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place and you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table and you shall put the table on the north side. Somewhat of a summary of what we've worked through but drawing attention to the curtains that we're all through surrounding and in between and particularly we see this veil that shall separate the holy place from the most holy, the holy of holies. And again, we've talked about once a year, one man was allowed in there, a high priest. Come back to that. But God's instructions are laid out. This was... God's initiative, all of these chapters. And this was God saying to them, I'm coming to be with you, but I'm not expecting you to figure out the best structure for me to live in. I'll tell you what I want. You just follow my instructions and things will go well. And we'll read in later weeks as we continue to study Exodus that Moses and the people do that. And they do an excellent job of constructing the tabernacle. And I think this is our first, or maybe second, right, great point of application. That we see the command for obedience here. And for us, the command is all of scripture. Right? We follow God how he instructs us. And we know God as he has revealed himself. It's a pretty crucial point to make. Listen, we're saved by grace. Absolutely. But we are not at liberty to make up things about God. What we want God to be like. What we think he wants from us. We dare not construct a God of our own imagination, our own wishes and think that we can do whatever we want and expect the real God to be pleased with us. No, God has revealed himself. 
He's told us what he wants in the pages of scripture. He is a holy and righteous God, a triune God who created, ordains, and brings all things to pass. And so just as the Hebrews followed his instructions in building the tabernacle exactly as God had instructed, so we are expected to live our lives in the ways that God instructs in the Bible. And we are to come to know and understand God as he has revealed himself. Anything else, and you may as well just be building a golden calf and bowing down to it. The more you study scriptures and submit yourself to them, the more you will know the mind of God and please him. Now, I think there's another very obvious application. Maybe not so obvious, but some of you have probably thought of this already. I remember doing a Sunday school class on the book of Haggai where the theme is that uh, the exiles had returned to the land. They were building their own homes but weren't building God's home. And we got to the end of it and no one had mentioned the fact that our church didn't have a building And so we threw that out there. And and I think that's here too. We get that question most Novembers at our annual budget meeting and many times in between, when are we gonna get our own building? And the answer is when you bring your scarlet yarn and your goat's hair and your ram skin and your acacia wood It'd be great if we could just supply the materials, right, and have an old-fashioned barn building uh, someday. Um, But I guess building codes being what they are here in Loudoun County, I think what it's actually just going to take is your gold, silver, and bronze, the first part. So if we want a building, it's going to have to be because the people bring the funds, the material. Is the Lord calling us to build a building? I don't know. We don't have the same direct revelation that Moses had, right? Maybe he's positioning us for that some sooner rather than later. He's preparing the funding through his people. We'll see. We'll see if he's right now working on a location for us. I pray that. But maybe he's not. And he's pleased that we have used this school as a sanctuary Um, There's upsides and downsides for both building and not building. We'd love to see it happen, but we're not gonna sacrifice ministry to see it happen. Because the Lord does not dwell in temples. God does not only meet with his people in one place, right? A church is God's building used by God's people, so I pray that someday we will see it happen. The big picture of this text, though, as we come, maybe our third point of application, the big picture of the text is a beautiful foreshadowing of what is coming many years later to Israel. Just as God came into the midst of his people in the wilderness, so he would come into the midst of his people many centuries later, at a, at a time when they might have thought he had forgotten them, 
There had been 400 years since any of the prophets had spoken God's word and a foreign nation occupied Israel. But God came down. God dwelt in their midst again. But this time, he didn't ask them to build anything. Because God did not hide himself in the tabernacle. This time, he took on human flesh. God, the Son, left heaven where he had existed eternally with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit and he humbled himself to become one of his creatures. John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Could also be said, he tabernacled among us. Jesus was the image of the invisible God. And just as God was veiled behind curtains, so Jesus' divinity was veiled. People walked right past him, didn't know they had seen God. But he still revealed God, and he revealed God in the greatest way as he preached, as he healed, as he loved, ultimately as he gave up his life for them and for us. We are not that removed from our Hebrew sermon series where a lot of this, I think, is sounding familiar. And this is gonna be a very Hebrews application, but Jesus is greater than the Ark of the Covenant because he not only contains the word of God, he is the word of God spoken to man. Jesus is greater than the table because he doesn't display the bread, he is the bread of life. Jesus is greater than the lampstand because he doesn't just illuminate a small area. He's the light of the world. Jesus is greater than the altar. He doesn't just hold the sacrifices of his people. He is the sacrifice on behalf of his people. He gave his life on the cross and met the requirement once and for all for blood to be shed on our behalf, right? Our sin separating us from a holy God and we have have earned the sentence of death but a perfect substitute killed in our place. Christ is that perfect substitute that allows us to be forgiven and released from our sentence. Jesus is the new and greater tabernacle. Hebrews 9 11 through 12 says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And Jesus is the curtain separating the holy of holies. Hebrews 10, 19, 20 and part of 22 says, therefore brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up, he opened for us through the curtain that is through 
his flesh. Let us draw near with a heart, true heart, in full assurance of faith. Remember what happened when Jesus died? The curtain in the temple in Jerusalem separating the Holy of Holies was torn. God giving the visible sign that the new way into God's presence had just been torn on the cross. And now to come to the Holy of Holies and commune with God would be through Christ, through his flesh, through his body. And so the writer of Hebrew tells us there's nothing separating us. Those who are in Christ, let us draw near in full assurance of faith. Amen. Let's pray. Take a moment to lift your prayer to the Lord, and then I'll close. Lord God, thank you for this passage of scripture. Thank you that you loved your chosen people so much that you made provisions to dwell in their midst. Thank you that you not only gave them the designs, but also the materials and the abilities to build. Thank you for the lessons of faith, the imagery that you built into the furniture of the tabernacle. And thank you that you continued to love your chosen people so much that centuries later, you sent the perfect tabernacle so that you could dwell among your people. Thank you for the gift of presence that is the Lord Jesus Christ, that he opened the way for us to enter the Holy of Holies, to commune with you the new and living way. Thank you that you have overcome our sinfulness, that you broke through our resistance the fact that left to ourselves, we would not want nothing to do with you. We are enemies. Lord, but you draw us near. You extend mercy and grace through Christ's blood. Lord, please give us hearts full of faith to draw near to you and to follow you all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Addiction from Acts chapter 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Amen.